Good morning. How's everyone? Yeah. My name is Eric. If I haven't met you, I'd love to get to know you or answer any questions you might have uh, in the Welcome Center out in the courtyard. Uh, we'd love to connect with you, give you a gift if you're new, and uh, help you become a part of our church. Uh, quick information on this. We're going to have another Israel information meeting on March 19th at 1130. So it'll be right after this service. Uh, in the activity center, which is the B building. We'll have lunch provided and go over, you know, the itinerary, the cost, the flights, you know, all the questions. And so if you missed the first one, we're having a second one. So we'd love you prayerfully to consider that and join us in January of 2024. A uh, little bit different this morning. One, what we're going to do is just uh, we're going to introduce some, some new members to our church. And so just important you understand what we mean when we say that. And so membership for us at LBC, um, we don't get a special t-shirt, handshake, or door access, or anything like that. You don't get a key. Uh, membership uh, for us, it's, it's formalizing the commitment to be a part of the family. And, and the reason the formality of it is important is you're officially, you're signing, you're covenanting um, that you're going to be a part of the body, and that comes out in various ways, in serving, in giving, in upholding the scriptures. And so one of the things you'll notice about our church is if you see someone teaching, they're a member. And so what does that mean? That means you can trust that whatever is being taught in here is also being agreed with in the junior high, the high school, and the children's ministry. So you don't have to worry about your kid coming home and saying, that's not what we just learned. And if so, we would go to that person and say, hey, you agreed to uphold the scriptures as outlined here. And as you can imagine in our climate and our culture, that's an important necessity to be able to do. Uh, but bigger than that, it's formalizing, hey, we're here to serve. We're here to be a part of. We want to help hold the leadership accountable. We want you to hold us accountable. And we're all in this together. And so membership's just taking that final commitment. So we're not wondering or guessing, hey, are you here or not here you know, what, what should we expect? And so we're honored and just privileged to have people that want to join with us in that journey of making disciples and glorifying God in all the nations. So I'm going to pray and thank God for that. And we have future membership classes you'll hear about, um, but that's just a little bit of what we're doing and why we're thankful. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you uh, for loving us. And we're thankful for the people who've committed to be a part uh, of our church in a formal way. And we pray that you would just help us grow together, help us love you more, help surrender more and more of our lives to you, uh, help us help each other to treasure Christ, uh, to make him the eyes of our heart, to just love you and seek you and want to be with you. And so I just pray as we go into this text that you would lead us and guide us, that your words would speak and not mine. Uh, we're thankful that you've written it down so that we might learn. Uh, we pray that we would learn in a way that changes us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to have a little bit of an introduction before we hop in, because this, I know it's your guys' favorite passage, but it's also one of the most abused passages in all the scriptures. I think we can partially blame Tupac for that. If you don't know who that is, Pastor Dave will tell you. But he famously came with, right, only God can judge me. And in one sense, that's true, and in one sense, that's not true. Uh, in, in the sense of what the text is getting at, yes, uh, God is the only one who can judge our value. 
Um, but it does not mean that we cannot judge what is a sin and what is not a sin. Okay? So some people read this passage and say, you can never tell me what to do. Uh, that's a little bit of a misguided statement. Okay? So let's, I want you to think through some things really quick. God is the one who tells us what is right and wrong. That's why Matthew 5 on, the Sermon on the Mount, saying he's a king, he has a kingdom, and in his kingdom there are rules. And if you're going to be a part of the kingdom, here are the rules of the kingdom. This is what you do and how you act within the kingdom. And so when we say marriage is between a man and a woman, that's not saying, hey, I think that. Saying that's part of being a citizen of heaven. It's part of being a part of Christ's kingdom. It's what he says. When someone wants to cheat or lie or steal, it's not saying, I would never do that. You shouldn't do that. It's, no, no, no. Christ told us not to do that. We should not do that. So the judgment isn't saying I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you. These are my rules that you need to abide by. It's upholding, hey, this is what Christ says. This is his kingdom, his rules. So that's the first thing you have to understand because it's going to tell us to make a judgment because it tells us after you've taken out the log, then take out the speck. And then it's going to tell us to, to make a judgment call about pigs and swine and dogs and all the fun things. And so we have to understand the judgment being talked about is we don't want to devalue people. One of the phrases, like I hope we all erase this from our vocabulary, is I would never do that when we're talking about sin. Because the reality is, sure, maybe you wouldn't do that, but there's plenty of things you would do. And we're not focusing on that, but we're focusing on them. Why? Because we use people to kind of position ourselves as higher in the kingdom. That's why he's saying judgment is bad when we do it like that. It's not the purpose of it. It's a devaluing a Christian to feel like you're a more important Christian. And then the, the last part of this before we hop in is, and you'll see this in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as Christians, we love to invent categories that aren't in the Bible and then tell people they're sinning in our categories and then judge them in that. See, that's moving outside of the lines. And some, some just kind of classic examples, you know, there will be some people, you know, maybe they watch CNN and they're like, you are not a Christian. I don't know how you could watch that network and love Jesus, right? And people will make that judgment like, yep, Matthew chapter 29. There's only 28 if you didn't know, right? Like it's, it's not there. Some of you are like, oh, that's in. No, it's not in there, right? It's not there, but they'll make it a category and then they'll judge you with it. It's kind of funny, uh, but maybe a little bit more serious, more recently, you know, hey, if you homeschool your kids, you don't care about evangelism. It's like, really? That's in there? Oh, you send your kids to public school. You don't care about discipleship. And it's like, oh, that, that's in the text too? There's so many things in the text I didn't know about. And when we create these categories and we beat people with them. Well, I'm a better Christian than you. I would never do that. I would never send my kids there. I would never let them do this. I would never do that. And it creates this hierarchy of Christianity. He's saying, you don't do that. Don't do that. There's plenty of things God's very clear on, and we hold those up. We don't beat people with them. We help them. So that's kind of our little preamble to the sermon. So now that we've kind of walked through that, how does the text start? Judge not that you might not be judged. If you're reading the Sermon on the Mount as one sermon, Hopefully, you kind of catch this subtext that keeps popping up. 
One of the reason, reasons we shouldn't be judging is that we shouldn't have enough free time to do it. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, hey, Christian, here's your king, King Jesus. Here's how you need to act to be a part of the kingdom. If you take all of it serious, we should be so busy taking care of our own relationship with Jesus that we don't have time to look at everybody else's stuff and make it and weigh it and talk about it and gossip about it. So just think through some of the things we've been asked to do so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't have hatred or anger in your heart. That's a full-time job. In this climate, isn't that a full-time job? So, I mean, just think right there. He's saying, as a citizen of heaven, as a child of God, do not be angry. Do not have hate in your heart. Don't have lust in your heart. Let your yes be yes. Be honest. That's a lot of work on adjusting your eyes. Don't have a covetous heart. Make sure you obey the king, but obey the king with the right heart. So, don't just do right things. Do right things because you love Jesus. So you need to be checking the motivation of your heart. So you need to pray to the Father, but pray like this. Am I praying how the Lord's prayer is modeled to myself, modeled to us? Treasure Jesus above money. Treasure Jesus above earthly material things. Don't be anxious. Are you guys getting the point? There's so much here saying you should be focused on your relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, right relationship with Jesus. You hunger for it, you thirst for it, and you care about it so much that you even focus on taking the log out of your own eye. This is the next piece, is that we would be focused on the sins in our own life, constantly trying to become more and more in line with Christ. Now, what he's getting at here is the way we deal with our sin sometimes is we look at other people's sin and go, oh God, aren't you glad I'm, I'm not like that? Because I would never cheat on, I would never yell at, I would never do that. God, you're so lucky to have me. It took more work for you to save them. See, one of the ways we deal with our sin is we compare it and then minimalize it. And saying that's not how you deal with sin. That's not what it's talking about. Saying if you're looking at other people's sin, A, you're missing the own sin in your own life, and it's causing you to have an inappropriate view of other people. See, people are not this tool we get to use to elevate ourselves, to make ourselves feel better about the decisions we make or the lack of decisions we make. This is why it says, verse two, for with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measurement you use, it will be measured. What's it saying? You're looking at them and going, I would never do that. You're terrible. Well, there are things you do do. And then that makes you terrible then. The judgment you're applying to them actually applies to you just in a different category. You're not getting drunk, but you're yelling at your kids and at your wife, and you have anger in your heart. That judgment you're using against them for cheating is used against you for anger. So it's saying, be careful how you view other people. 
And the best cure you can have for viewing other people is to take care of your own sin. Is to look at your own sinful life. Why does that matter? I want you to think about this because look in verse 3. It says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Why is that important? Because when we think about our own sin, we always think about our own sin in what? In context. There's always a context to our sin. I want you to think about this. When you're really angry, were you perfectly fine and then you magically got mad? When you said something you shouldn't have, do you just randomly do that? Or were there things leading up to that that maybe caused you to say that? Meaning, have you ever had a bad day? Have you ever lost a loved one? Have you ever gotten cut off in traffic? Have you ever lost your job? Have you ever had someone degrade you and devalue you? Have you ever lost something you cared about? There's a story or a narrative behind that sin. Is this true? Yeah, because when we pray, that's how we pray. But God, you don't understand this, this, and this, and this. It really wasn't that bad. But when we look at other people, we divorce the context and go, look at how terrible they are. I would never do that. See, if you're in the process of dealing with the log in your own eye, you understand there's a context. You understand maybe there's a reason. It's not excusing it, but maybe there's a lot going on. Maybe think of the things you say. Hey, this is how I grew up. I think I might have an addiction. I don't think I have control over this area of my life. Or maybe sometimes you're struggling to even see if it's a problem. You probably have this conversation at least once to twice a week in your house, either with your kids or your spouse. I don't do that. Yes, you do. You do that all the time. No, I don't. You ever have that conversation? No, I don't. Why? We lack awareness. Why? Because we have a log in our eye and we can't see straight. And so sometimes you're like, I don't do that. And then like two years later, you're like, oh man, I do that. Dang it. They might be doing the same thing. They're just not seeing it. And in the same way you don't see it, and then you finally see it, you're like, oh, wow. Part of us being able to look at other people properly is being very methodical at looking at ourselves. Taking that plank out. This is why it's getting at seek first the kingdom, treasure Christ, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be poor in spirit, meaning you don't bring anything to the table. All you have is Jesus. Mourn your sin. If you do that, then you'll be able to clearly, verse five, take the speck out of the brother's eye. So that's us dealing with our own. Now, what's the warning? The warning's in verse 5. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. So what's the hypocrisy? The hypocrisy is not that you're saying, you know, I would never do that because maybe you wouldn't. The hypocrisy is acting like you've never sinned and you've never committed any error against God. 
It's acting like you're not a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, sure, you'd never do that sin, but there's plenty of sins that you would do. And and rather than elevating kind of like what we do in Christianity is there's like the really bad sins, the moderate sins, and then like sin light. We tell everybody we live in sin light. And then we get really mad and superior about the, the super sinners. And you say, that's hypocrisy. You're just putting your sin at a two and putting their sin at a 10. And then using it to feel better about yourself. And then, and then look at God and say, see, I'm really not that bad. And God goes, you know what? You're right. You're right. They are so much worse than you. Thank you for making my job easier. He says, that's hypocrisy. Because everybody sins. Everybody falls short. And the standard is Jesus. The standard is not me. It's not you. Standard is Christ. And we all fall short of that standard. It's hypocrisy when we act like we aren't a victim or perpetrator of sin. So that's why it's important that we use biblical categories to think about this. We have to think, how does the Bible talk about it so that we, in effect, act properly? I want you to think about this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. The Bible uses this language for a reason. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Okay, next part, a few verses later. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, why is that important? Because we use different imagery to talk about sin, I think, in the church. We say this, We've all failed. Everybody has an F. Nobody gets an A without Jesus. So you know why that matters? Because this is what we do. Yeah, I got an F, but I got a 58%. They got a 2%. They're way worse of a failure than I am. That's where the boasting comes in. Jesus only needed 42% to save me. He needed 98% to save you. And so we walk through this, yeah, we all sin, but I'm a 58 and you're a two. I'm so much better than you. See, if you use the biblical language, you're dead. You can't get more or less dead. You guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. Is that, is that false? You can't get more dead. And so when you understand you need Jesus at 100 They need Jesus at 100. You cannot elevate yourself above them. God did not give us each other to use as a tool to feel like a superior Christian and then feel like we need to repent less because our sin's not as bad as the other person's. That's the hypocrisy. That's the hypocrisy. That's why you have to use the biblical definitions. Dead in sin. Dead in sin. Don't act like you weren't dead. Don't act like you don't need Jesus. Everybody falls short. Don't act like they fall more short. It's a false celebration. And it's using people 
to masquerade your Christianity as something that it's not, which is a sinner saved by grace at 100% of Christ's work. Another verse, James 2, 10, says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point, has become guilty of all of it. Is there anyone that hasn't sinned at least one time? If you're saying, I've never done that, you just lied and you sinned one time, okay? Everybody, everybody. See, we want to have this ranking system and get ourselves closer to Jesus and other people and have this superiority. So I'm saying, if you're going to, to do this right, you have to start with the log that is in your own eye so that you understand the context of your sin and then you understand the motivation of your sin. And then when you see someone else, you're fully aware you were dead in sin. You're guilty of breaking it all, that you can't get to Christ, you can't get to God without the work of Christ on your behalf. Then all of a sudden, when you see that person, you now see with a sympathetic, compassionate, generous heart because you understand how hard it is to overcome your sin. You understand what it's like to fall short and you understand what it's like to be loved by Christ. And you understand that. Because here's the thing, it does tell us to address the sin. I want, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Verse five, you will see clearly to take the speck out of the brother's eye. There's two things we have to see here. One, everybody has a log. Do you see that? Take the log out of your own eye. It doesn't say, hey, speck people take your specks out and log people take your logs out. Everybody take the log, then you'll see the speck. Why? Because when you actually focus on your own sin, other people's sin will seem much smaller because you'll be very aware of your own. But step one is everybody has a log. Step two is once you've dealt with that, then you talk to your brother. You talk to your brother or sister in Christ because we are to talk about sin with each other. The difference is the motivating factor has to be we treasure Christ and we love him so much that we love the other members of the kingdom, that we love the other brothers and sisters in the family so much that we don't want to see their relationship with God be hindered. And sometimes that log is so big in their eye, they can't see. And it takes another brother or sister in Christ coming and saying, hey, I think something's off. You, you, I think you love that thing too much. It controls you. You're different when you talk about it. You can't stop talking about it. I think you're in an inappropriate relationship with someone that is not biblical. You're married. You shouldn't be doing that. See, there's a difference between, I would never do that. I can't believe you would do that. You're terrible. See, that's using their sin to position yourself above. There's a difference. Because we're supposed to address the speck. We're supposed to address the sin. A quote for you. It says, to sum up, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. It's beautiful. You have to think about that. It's a plea that when we would see other Christians, we would have such generosity or charity because we understand what it's like to sin against God 
and we understand the damage that that sin does. And we care about them so much, we just want to help them. But first, we've dealt with ourselves, and that's what drives that compassion and generosity. Another quote, don't judge does not mean don't think. It does not mean if you see someone that's going to get hit by a bus, you go, oh, maybe they like getting hit by buses. I'll just watch. That's what our culture does. Maybe they really like harmful behavior. Who am I to judge? You're not the judge. God's word is the judge. It's your job to remind them of what the judge said. You tackle them when the bus is coming and say, I didn't want you to get hit by that bus. I didn't want you to get hurt. I care about you. Not, I would never stand in front of a bus. What's wrong with you? Yeah, you won't stand in front of a bus, but you'll cheat on your spouse. That makes you so much better. So what he's getting at, don't judge till you've taken the log out of your own eye. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't act like you've never needed to ask for forgiveness. Don't act like you're not a sinner saved by grace. Don't act like you weren't dead in sin and only made alive because of the work of Christ. See, the Bible does tell us to address sin with each other, but to address it in a specific way. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, not on the internet, not in a prayer group, that it's a prayer request and it's really a gossip session. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See, if we're dealing with our own sin, there should be a compassion and generosity towards our brother and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I saw this. And it says, if they actually listen to you, you've gained your brother. You've helped them. You've helped them in their relationship with Jesus. You've helped remove a barrier that was in between them and the Father. You've gained a brother. It's a right and biblical and loving thing when we address sin with one another. It's the manner and the fashion and the motive of the heart behind it that matters. James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. You shouldn't have to be afraid of confessing your sin that's, oh, now I'm not gonna get to go to the birthday party because now I became a two percenter and they're a 58 percenter. The Bible just assumes we talk about these things because we all need Christ at the same level, 100%. That you might be healed the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The Bible assumes we're helping each other with our sin, and the Bible commands us to help each other with our sin. Okay, look at Titus 2. I just want you to think through this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, steadfastness, Older women, likewise, we don't have any of those yet, but we will, so pay attention, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Why does that matter? Because this is, 
I think what happens sometimes is you have a younger mom and she's like, I just, I want to strangle my husband and I just want to quit and run away and never come back. It's very damaging if an older mom goes, oh my gosh, I would never do that. Dinner was on the table by five. House was always clean, always spoke sweet to my husband. Yeah, but you gossip behind his back to all your friends. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Did you hear what she said she does? That's not how that's supposed to work. So maybe you didn't struggle in those things. You say, I know what it's like to struggle in marriage. And maybe you're, because you didn't struggle with that, you're the perfect person for them to talk to. Here's how I communicated. But here's some areas where I fell and it was hard. and How I had to trust the Lord. Or you have a man who's, who's just like, I just want to yell and scream at my kids because they don't do what they're supposed to do. It's not helpful for a man. I would never do that. I just work so much they don't know my name. Because that's better. No. You say, oh, oh, I understand that. You know, I, this, here's what I would do when I wanted to yell. And you know what? I've failed my kids many times. And here's what I've had to tell them. Here's how I've confessed sin before them. Here's how I've tried to love them and bring them up and teach them. Okay? Those are how that's supposed to play out. And then there's this whole nother level of, oh, you know what? I think, I think I'm going to homeschool my kids. I would never do that. What are, you don't care about evangelism? That's now taking a non-biblical category and beating them with it because they don't agree to your methods. Same on, oh, you're letting them go to public school with the heathens? You don't care about discipleship. Oh my gosh, you got vaccinated? You don't love Jesus. See where we're going with this? Judge not. Judge not. Because we all fall short in some area. And we all struggle Keep the biblical categories biblical and do it in a manner that helps the other love Jesus. Because to do it in any other way is hypocritical. I'm at 58%, you're at 2%. I'm so much better than you. That's a hypocrite. We're all at zero. Without the work of Christ, we never get to God. And when we break one, we break all. We all break. We all need, we all fall short. Therefore, deal with your own sin. And once you've dealt with your own sin, help others. So that we can, Colossians 1, 28 through 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So this is the toil and the struggle of the Christian. You're taking the log out of your eye because you want to grow in your faith and you're helping other people take the speck out of there so they can grow in their faith and be mature. Because when we're mature in Christ, it's when the world sees we really do have a different marriage. We really do have a different parenting style, friendship style, value system. See, when we're infants in Christ, we still kind of have some of the world and some of us and God's working it out of us through sanctification and the Holy Spirit. But when we're mature in Christ, we're mature in Christ, that's when people can see there's something really completely different. 
And that completely different is we're a citizen of heaven. We have a heavenly father. Now, and you have to think about this. Mature in Christ, that's taking that log out. It's going to look different. You know, for, for a younger believer, there might be a lot of outward acts. Like, you swear a lot. You're belligerent. You have, don't have self-control. That's your log. You might be a mature Christian. And I would hope you do think before you speak. And you are much more calm and kind. But what the Sermon on the Mount is going to get at is, hey, you mature Christian, it's not just about your outward appearances and outward demonstrations. It's what's going on in here and here. What's going on in here when you see someone who's different than you? What's going on in here when you think about your dreams and your goals and your passions? Those are logs too. And in our journey towards Christ-likeness, we're to be taking them out over and over and over. That's why it's seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, right relationship. Hunger and thirst for that relationship. What this is getting at is we are totally 100% driven towards doing the right thing because we love Christ. And that's sometimes the biggest plank in our own eye is that we do things so that people will like us and we can convince God to like us and we can feel like we can purchase God's favor, God's favor through our behavior. It's part of the problem with the plank is when we don't see it, we're sitting there going, God, this shouldn't happen to me. I deserve. This shouldn't happen to me. I always go to church. I always give. I'm always nice, except to you. And I love everyone except you. We feel entitled. That's why it says, read through the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. See, the poor in spirit are taking the log out. They know they have nothing. And without Christ, they have nothing. And with Christ, they have everything. They mourn their sin. They seek the kingdom. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's your framework working through this text. And then he's going to make this really hard transition now into verse 6. He's going to say, deal with yourself. This is how you deal with the other. And then there's going to be, and now you need to draw a line. You need to know when to stop. And this is going to be a hard part of the text. So just going back to our framework, this is not me telling you. This is God's word telling you. And if this angers you, you need to pray through what you see in the text. Okay? The text reads, verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is where clearly we need to make a judgment call, don't we? That there's a pig or there's a dog. And I know that seems harsh, but what is he getting at? There will be a type of person who wants nothing to do with the word of God and God himself and Christ as your savior. Their heart will be so hard and so vile that it does no good to talk to them about the word of God. This is why when you look in Matthew 18, it's looking at and assuming that a Christian cares about God's word. And that when you bring God's judgments, God's rules, God's commands in front of them, 
they go, oh my gosh, I need to repent, turn from that sin. Thank you for bringing that before me. That's how you've won your brother. But Matthew 18 goes on to say, if they say, that's not a sin, I can cheat on my wife, I can be an alcoholic, whatever it is, that's not a sin. That you'd bring another brother, and then you'd bring it to the leadership of the church. If that heart still won't turn, says you're to treat them like they're not a Christian, a Gentile or a tax collector, because they're not coming underneath the authority and the judgments of King Jesus. And then this passage takes it a step further, talking about Pharaoh. Moses is like, let the people go, let the people go, let the people go. And Pharaoh says, you draw a line there. We only have so much time on this earth. Share the gospel, pray for them, love them, but don't try to beat them into Christianity. You cannot make them love Jesus. Do not throw the precious word of God that they might just topple over it, stomp on it, make it worthless. Don't do that. So that gives us kind of our framework for how do we deal with people? How do we think about things? Starts with dealing with yourself. Then it starts with dealing with them compassionately and generously. And then sharing with people, but drawing a line and going, this is going nowhere. I need to stop doing this. I pray for them. I love them. I'm going to quit trying to get them to come underneath the word of God because they just simply have too hard of a heart. Some quotes, I think, kind of help you see some more perspective on this. It says, if we first remove the log from our eye and thus see clearly to take a speck from our brother's eye, he, check this, if he's a true brother in the Lord, will appreciate our solicitude, but not everyone is, a great, is grateful for criticism and correction. Saying the Christian will be. The Christian will care that you're trying to help them be like Christ. Non-Christian won't. Proverbs 9.8 says this too. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Trying to get a non-Christian to act like a Christian doesn't work. They don't have Jesus. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have a new heart. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. A wise person says, you're trying to help me love Jesus? Thank you. Thank you so much. And we can do that when we're bringing in biblical categories. We're not trying to impose our kind of earthly preferences and beat people with them. When we say God doesn't want you to love anything more than loving him. He doesn't want you to be in an inappropriate relationship, you're married. He doesn't want you to be addicted to that substance. These are all biblical things. It says the wise man will love you for that. See, our culture thinks the loving thing to do is just watch them drown. It's not loving, it's selfish because you don't want to get water. It's another sermon, okay? Another quote. It ought to be understood that dogs and swine are names given not to every kind of debauched men or those who are destitute of the fear of God and of true godliness, 
but to those, here, look, by clear evidences, have manifested a hardened contempt of God so that their disease appears to be incurable. But by dogs and swine, he means here that those who are so thoroughly imbued with a wicked contempt of God, they refuse to accept any remedy. I have no problem. I need no Christ. So when you've seen it go that far, you need to stop. So kind of a little bit of a recap here. Focus on Christ. Seek first the kingdom. Focus on that relationship. How am I sinning? Taking the log out of your eye. Mourning over that sin. Matthew 5. Thanking him that he's made a payment for your sin to be in the kingdom. Then now, if you see the other, help the other person. And then lastly, you know, try to help everyone, but draw a line to say, okay, God, I've gone as far as I can go. I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to pray for them. But the change of heart is it's between you and them. Okay. Some questions for us to think through. Why is understanding the motivations of your heart key to the Sermon on the Mount? Because this is where he nails the difference between being religious and being Christian, loving Jesus and loving rules. Why are you doing good things? Why do you not want to sin? Why do you do this? Is it because you love Jesus? It's the shift. How can you stay aware of your heart's motivations? Two, how does being judgmental damage the church? If people just wanted to go to a place where they could feel like they're being used so other people could climb the ladder, they could stay at work, couldn't they? I have a better title. I make more money. More people like me here. That's essentially what the world tries to do. You're just climbing the ladder the last thing they need to do is come here and feel like you're a 2%er, I'm a 58%er, I'm so much better than you. No, they need to come and say, man, they all want to help each other be like Jesus. We have different logs, not better logs. Be a way to say it. Three, uh, what is the difference between judging someone's value and someone's sin? I would never do that versus, oh my gosh, that's wrong, let me help you. I care about you. How should we approach someone else's sin? Just thinking through that. Hey, I care about you. But the text says you deal with it first by dealing with your own. Because when you deal with your own, you'll come with context, sympathy, generosity, care. Not this desire to use them to feel better about yourself. Five. What's the difference between offering salvation to someone and sharing the motivations of your heart with someone? So what we're getting at there in that text is is you're you're presenting the word of God, presenting the word of God, and they're smashing it and smashing it and smashing it, saying, okay, you stop doing that. But that doesn't say you can't. You know, the the reason we do this is I love Jesus. Without Jesus, I would be dead in sin. Just simply sharing with everyone the motivation behind what you do is because of how great 
Christ is. The Sermon on the Mount is trying to teach that you hold Christ high for paying for your sin and you realize that you contributed nothing and because of him, you owe him everything and then that drives everything you do for the rest of your life. It's because you love Jesus. That's the shift as a Christian that we all have to have is it's all because of Christ. And because of him, we can never be better than one another because he did all the work for all of us. So we have much to celebrate. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. Uh, Hard text. It's so tempting for us to just want to tangibly look at someone else's actions and say, oh, I would never do that. And build a false sense of security about our spiritual superiority. I pray we would die to that temptation. I pray we would turn from that lifestyle. That we would be so focused on who you are and what you've done that we would be constantly taking the log out of our eyes saying, Lord, forgive me. The Lord's prayer, right? Forgive us of our trespasses. God, help me not struggle with that sin anymore. Help us praise you for forgiving us. Praise you for dying on the cross for our sins. That we would be a grateful, humble group of Christians that just lift you up and seek to be like you in every way. It's our prayer that our hearts would sing and thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.